Hey, everybody. All right, I'm Blake Ray. And this. Okay. Hey, Duke, how you doing? And I'm Duke Ralston, the Reaper's Digest. <laughs> how about you? I'm good, brother. I'm good. Drinking a beer, reading scary stories. Me too, my friend. What kind of beer are you drinking tonight, Blake? I got a Classic City Lager. Let's see, hold it up to the Oh, yeah. Label out always. <laughs> okay. Brewed in Athens, Georgia, my uh, hometown for a long time. Until I moved to Marietta. <laughs> <laughs> hey she's pretty you know <laughs> yeah i understand i understand i actually uh worked a job in athens one time when i worked as uh, for an environmental firm i drove an 18 wheeler there uh, uh onto a navy base and converted about 20 sailors to christianity in a heartbeat i am drinking truck stop honey uh it's a honey brown ale uh, brewed in Gadsden, Alabama. Awesome. How is it? It's wonderful. It's a, uh, I like brown ales anyway, but I like to drink brown ales when I've got to do something where I need to be conscious. Um, you know, my, <laughs> my normal drink of choice is an IPA or a stout and IPAs will rock your world and stouts can be pretty can be pretty strong too. Um, a honey brown ale, I can drink two or three of those and work and talk and be just fine, you know. So that's why I chose it. And this one is really good. It's um, It's got a little bit of a sweet taste. Of course, it's a honey brown ale. And I actually used this when I started using this to cook with because it goes really well with beef. So like I make a pot roast or shepherd's pie, this is what I cook it in. Really? So cooking tips from Duke. Cooking tips from Duke, yeah. I find uh, I like a lager in with uh, uh -huh. in with uh, Mexican food. Oh yes, yes. Cook the stuffing with a uh, cinnamon, a lager, and a little bit of lime. Uh huh. Good. That's good, good stuff. Good. I love lagers. I mostly drink lagers in the summertime, but I like oh, a yeah. nice cold lager when it's nice and hot outside. You know, good stuff. No lawnmower beer. A lawnmower beer. That's exactly right. All right. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about H.P. Lovecraft and the Call of Cthulhu. Probably his uh, best-known work, right? Yes. I mean, right. it's no argument with that. There's no argument with that because it's kind of foundational to the Lovecraft mythos. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's where the mythology yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's called, you know, colloquially, the Cthulhu mythos. Yes. So, yeah. It absolutely starts here. And this is where you get here. It starts here, and then you get you get a little bit more in the Necronomicon. Um, there was a short story he wrote that was kind of comedic. It was intended to be kind of comedic. It was some of his other stuff. But it was sort of a history of the Necronomicon. 
and yeah. it does round out some of the some of the notes. But this is the foundation of of uh, the whole Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, and this was published in. Let's see, I believe it was 1926. It was written and then published in 1928. Is that correct? I I think you're absolutely right on that. It was it was written. Yeah. I know it was written in 26. Yeah. Yeah. And it uh, actually was originally uh, rejected by Weird Tales, which is weird. I, that is weird. Um, but, you know, if you stop and think about it, if, you know, nothing, I don't know of anything like the Call of Cthulhu that was ever published before. So that editor was taking a risk, I think, when when he agreed to publish it. You know, th this was kind of one of those things. This was truly a weird tale. Oh, yeah. It was... And I think I said this to you before when we were talking about Lovecraft. It went from, it was a jump from, you know, what if there was a spooky skeleton to what if there is no God and the real God hates you? Yes. Which is yes. a much more fundamentally frightening idea, you know? <laughs> what if everything Absolutely. you know is wrong? <laughs> mm hmm he even says one of the things I outlined that, that interested me, he, he talked a lot about the theosophist and he, the, line, the theosophist have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle, wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They've hinted at the strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by bland optimism. And so the theosophist, had this kind of uh, optimistic outlook. I mean, it's totally, uh, totally a cult practice and it was different from the mainstream religions, but it was very important in the twenties. And he's saying these guys, yeah, they kind of know what they're talking about, but it's way darker than they realize. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing he says, right. The beginning, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, when you get into, cause this is uh, I guess we should do a little bit of a summary, right? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's do that. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So basically, uh, and then I'll get back to the point I was about to make because that okay. was going to take a minute. Um, okay. And as we go along, you'll get used to, oh no, he's ramping up. Um, but <laughs> I do. <think. laughs> yeah <laughs> oh good <laughs> there's two of them yeah. but um it's presented as a manuscript found among the papers of the late francis Whalen thurston of boston right mm -hmm. yes and it's a manuscript in three parts the first part is um the first part is about Francis Whalen Thurston and how he starts looking into the papers of his late great uncle. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So in these papers are all these clippings and stories of the Cthulhu cult, you know, mm -hmm. but mostly they're centered around a, a, uh, a small sculpture, which he describes as being equal parts, dragon, cuttlefish, 
human. You know, it's so out of the image we've all come to know and love, you know, the cuttlefish head, the, you know, big mm -hmm. wings, the big claws, right? right? And how the sculptor, uh, Wilcox, goes insane, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second part, you know, and we're basically following someone on their descent into madness. Yes. Would you agree? I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So the second part is the tale of Inspector Legrasse. That's about a uh, Louisiana. Uh, what is he? He's a. He's an inspector in officer. New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if he was a sheriff, but he's a police officer. He's a police officer. Yeah. Police inspector. Mm -hmm. And he. Uh, breaks up a cult meeting, which is uh, suspected to be voodoo, but is uh, revealed to be something much, much darker, involving human sacrifice right. and a an idol of unknown origin, which matches the base, mm -hmm. the bass relief, the uh, little clay right. piece. And then the final piece you know, entitled The Madness from the Sea is a story of a Gustav Johansson, a Norwegian sailor who whose uh, crew overtakes a group of, uh, uh, let's call them uh, cultists. You know, they're, they're like kind of yeah. crazed. Yeah. Um, yeah, cultists is your term. It's a lot, uh, a lot more generous than the phrasing that Lovecraft used, but um, yeah, he overtakes them. They kill them. Then they mm -hmm. follow their trajectory, only to find themselves face to face with the Great Cthulhu. You know, right, right. Now, what I think is interesting here is that there is something so nihilistic about the story yes you know you were saying that the theosophists were basically optimistic right right they're basically optimistic um and there's a lot we can talk about with theosophy we'll come back to that moment but um it is a religion that is uh, you know it 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 is a revealed religion and it's profoundly influenced by Eastern philosophy and reincarnation. And one of the things that Madame Blavatsky uh, talks about is um, the cities that were lost in great cataclysms and go below the sea like Lemuria and Atlantis. And they have real knowledge about these places and root races that, that established each one. And but it's a very, you know, it's a very optimistic. She's when she was alive, she was making converts in New York and London. I mean, it's not an it's not an apocalyptic cult or anything like that. No. And doomsday's um, cults don't last. Right. They don't. Yeah, they, that's right. They kind of have an end date on them. <laughs> yeah. And theosophy. Theosophy uh, lasted a long time and was very potent potent in the 1920s and it was probably at its height 
in the 1920s. And it was all the rage in New York. Um, and it was all the rage in Berlin, which is where Hitler and the Nazis picked up on it. And, you know, when you watch Indiana Jones and the Nazis are going all over the world hunting these artifacts, that really happened. And oh, yeah. they were attempting to impart to, to prove some of the things that Blavatsky talked about with archaeology. So after World War II and its association with Nazis was kind of the death knell for theosophy. I mean, it still exists. There's still people that follow it, but it's nothing like it was in the 20s. And I think, uh, I think Lovecraft looked at this and said, and Lovecraft, for everything, this was a dark dude, okay? But he looked at that and he said, these guys, number one, he kind of poo-poos their revealed knowledge. He says they're guessing. And everything in theosophy sort of depended on Madame Blavatsky and others receiving revealed knowledge from the gods. And uh, he poo-poos that right out of the gate. He says they're guessing at it. He says they sort of guess correct, but it's far worse than anything they think. And I think that's really that's really kind of a, a neat way to begin a mythos. Yeah. Well, um, if you look at the horror and clay, the first part of this three part, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He says, and I'm quoting directly here. Uh, the most merciful thing in the world, I think is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its mm -hmm. contents. Mm -hmm. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. I mean, that's yeah, that's a, <laughs> that is that's a, that's a, heck of a quote. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, that's quite the opening to a mythos, too. Yeah, it's that's a heck of a quote, and he he uh builds on that. And, and, you know, I and this is something that, that plays in my mind because I do believe, I do believe that writers and musicians, I believe that artists tap into something. And Lovecraft and Robert Howard, Robert E. Howard, who wrote it at the same time, they tap into a darkness that I think, you know, they're trapped between that time that they wrote in is trapped between World War One and World War II. They're trapped between two great evils. And a lot of times in this country, we don't think a whole lot about World War II, World War One because our involvement was fairly limited. It's over quickly for us. Um, but World War One was far worse than World War Two was. So um and, and and Lovecraft would have been in touch for that. As a matter of fact, he volunteered for service, but was denied. Um, Why was he denied? So, um, I didn't get the exact reason. I think uh, his aunts basically got him deferred. They didn't want him going. And I, I don't, I'm not 100% certain about that. I just read one that quote that never gave a real good. Yeah, they never gave a real good explanation. They never give it gave anything that was ironclad. They hinted 
dad, his aunt, he was the only male relative. His aunts got him out of the service against his wish. Um, he did, interestingly enough, um, he believed that World War I was a waste because he did not believe that the uh, the, Ang the Teutonic Anglo Anglos should be warring with Teutonic Germans and Scandinavians. He thought they should be working together um, to face the the people of Asia and the people uh, the the Mongolian Central Europeans, what he called Mongolian Central Europeans. Uh, it was a very race driven view of the world, and you know. As someone who's born in the South, we tend to think we see we see race in terms of black and white. That's 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 a Southern thing, yeah. uh, particularly in the rural South. But Lovecraft was, uh, you know, he was he was into Anglo-American. If you weren't English, um, it was a problem. I read some of the things he wrote about the Irish that were just horrible, and we don't think about the Irish as being. A separate race, but he did. So, oh, yeah. and we have to we have to remember at this time period the the, the British Empire was the most powerful empire on the planet, and, or at least it was billed as the most powerful empire on the planet. And the United States was a close second. So he was definitely uh, definitely into the the, the Anglo American centric view of the world. So. And I mean, that's always the elephant in the room when you're talking about Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The dude was xenophobic. Yes. Sexist. Uh, yes. Racist. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and say probably homophobic, but, you know, I don't know if he ever I, weighed I, in. I'm going to guess I, he I probably was. <laughs> I would I would guess that he probably was as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he... You know, uh, his friend of mine said he didn't even like other white people. You know, I mean, he was, he was very much, his racism extends past simple racism to uh, cultural, uh, centric. you know, he, he did not like the Irish. He did not like the Scots. He didn't like the Welsh. He, he was an Anglophile. And uh, I don't know how I felt about the French, but, uh, you know, in I'm gonna his guess mind, he wasn't a fan. I'm gonna guess he probably wasn't either. Um, but the, uh, the Anglo Saxons, the Germans, the Scandinavians, he considered that with the Aryan, what, what Hitler called the Aryans, that was definitely, I mean, he would have had a lot of, um, he would have found a lot of common ground with Hitler. So, oh, yeah. so you know, that's the guy we're talking about, and um. <laughs> Now let's talk about what a genius I mean, writer is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> well, and that's kind of the thing you have to do, and, and in my opinion, um, and we were talking about this today. You can either say Lovecraft was a horrible racist, and you're right, and I'm not going to read his stuff, which I think is a terrible loss. You can say Lovecraft was a horrible racist. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a historical marker. And that tells me about the time and the culture he was writing in. Or you can say, you can try to defend what he's saying, which I think 
I know there are people that will, but I, I, I'm not one of them. No, I'm not. I, I tend to go in for let's, let's read Lovecraft and let's, let's use it as a historical marker that what Lovecraft writes tells us a lot about America in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. And so it's worth well, reading for that purpose. It's same as same with Gone with the Wind. It's it doesn't tell you a thing about the Civil War, but it tells you about Atlanta in the twenties and thirties. You know. Yeah. Um, the thing about Lovecraft though is he was also classist, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of this, a lot of this sort of stems from what we could probably say with undiagnosed mental health issues. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the dude was not well. <laughs> like, no. And if you read his stories, <laughs> creeping madness. Yes. That I is an underlying. Had... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. There's a little bit of lag time. I don't mean to interrupt. And it's, you know, mm. I think he was profoundly influenced by his father's madness. Mm hmm. And uh, his father had syphilis and uh, late stage syphilis is accompanied by madness. Yeah, absolutely. But I think uh, when you read about his background, I mean, this dude was, uh, he was publishing astronomy uh, magazines when he was in junior high school. Mm -hmm. He was editing astrology. I mean, the the guy was a certified genius, but there was something there that's just not fun. And um, you know, he he he's a certified, but he never really completes high school. Yeah, you know, and going to college, and um, is one of the best writers I've ever read. Well, you look at his. Mm -hmm. Well, you look at his work, and it's just so meticulous. There's an attention to detail. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, so probably one of the greatest American writers is Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, you know, and we all know what Poe wrote. Weird fiction. Yes. Weird fiction, weird poetry, right? Yes. You know, we're using the term weird fiction the way that Weird Tales used it, you know, as a Mm -hmm. sort of blanket term for genre, you know, horror, sci-fi, you know, gothic. Mm -hmm. But Poe outlines in one of his reviews exactly what the weird tale should do. He was reviewing Hawthorne, who was another great writer, you know? Mm-hmm. So, he says, about halfway through this very rambling review, where he pretty much just decides that he's going to, uh, you know, pontificate on the state of writing. He says, a skillful literary artist has constructed a tale. If wise, he has not fashioned his thoughts to accommodate his instance. But having conceived with deliberate care 
a certain unique or single effect to be wrought out. He then invents such incidents. He then combines such events as may best aid him in establishing the preconceived effect. If his very initial sentence tend not to be the outbringing of this effect, then he has failed in his first step. In the whole composition, there should be no word written of which the tendency, direct or indirect, is not to the one pre-established design. And I think, in a way, this story exemplifies that. Yeah. Yeah. The very first piece of writing, under the title and the name, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm is found among the papers of the late Francis Whalen Thurston of Boston, which gives us two things, right? From a literary standpoint, mm-hmm. it allows us to use the first person. Yeah. But without the removal of tension that the first person usually gives. Yes. Because think about it. Like, usually if it's in the first person, you're like, okay, well, Obviously, you survived to tell the story. In this case, mm-hmm. he says, yeah, he didn't. He didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. No. No. We don't know whether he died or he went star crazy, star mad, but we think he probably died. Oh, you're talking about Waylon didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah. So. We know that. We also know uh, why. Why did he not make it? Because he knew too much. Because he did exactly what you as a reader are doing. Yep. He read the notes and learned too much. So it like mm-hmm. weirdly makes the story kind of dangerous. It does. I never thought about that. But yeah. 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 So that displacement of the tension onto the reader. I think is just Mm -hmm. masterful, you know, and that idea that Poe had that you have to use every moment of it to get there. Well, he did, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I like about this story. It's a short story, but it's dense. You couldn't edit anything out of this. There's in that, that doesn't, like you say, there's nothing in it that doesn't lead to the end. Exactly. And a story in three parts could easily, you Mm -hmm. could usually, you know, I've worked with a lot of writers where you could go, hey, you know, we don't need like the middle, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We could do without like that whole beginning, you know? (laughs) But in this, it all drives. Yes. It's like a good rock song, you know. It's all driving towards yes. that end. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that that I noticed about it. And usually, when you when you have a story, I've tried to write stories that in first tense, I mean first person. And they're usually, I can't do it. It usually comes out boring. 
but this moves and it is, I mean, it moves and shakes and you never, you, there's not a minute in it that is uh, anything like pork. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was telling you the other day that um, I had read some story or some critique somewhere that said that he really wasn't all that good a writer, but I think he very, very uh, the the words he uses, the amount of words he, wording he uses the fact that he writes this in the first tense and the scene where they come up on, um, they come up on the, on the ceremony and the swamps. Mm-hmm. It almost has a beat. I mean, oh, yeah. it, 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 you know, when writing action, sometimes I'll sit down and I'm writing an action and John hit, hit Dwayne right between the eyes and Dwayne fell backwards and he got up with, you know, I mean, it, it, it I have to go back and reword it because sometimes it just looks contrived and it's kind of, it's not there. But this thing where he kind of like the police come up on that ceremony, it's, it's almost like poetry. I mean, it boom, 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 boom. And I mean, it could be, he moves right through the paragraph. Speaking of which, have you ever read Lovecraft's poetry? I have, I have. And uh, I used to be saying, He was not good at everything. <laughs> Elliot, yeah. he was not. <laughs> no, he's definitely a prose writer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he's got that, that sense of the way language works. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the way timing works mm-hmm. to hold something together. There's a mm-hmm. moment. Let's see if I can find it in the text. Okay. When he's talking about coming up on the coming up on the uh, there it is. He's talking about coming up on this ceremony. Right? Yes. And he says, Then the men, having reached a spot where the trees were thinner, came suddenly in sight of the spectacle itself. Four of them reeled, one fainted, and two were shaken into a frantic cry, which the mad cacophony of the orgy fortunately deadened. Lagrasse dashed swamp water on the face of the fainting man, and all stood trembling and nearly hypnotized with horror. In a natural glade of the swamp stood a grassy island of perhaps an acre's extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality than any but a syme or an angorla could paint. Void of clothing, this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire, and their center of which, revealed by occasional rifts in the curtain of flame, stood a great granite monolith, some eight feet in height, on top of which, incongruous with, it, incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carbon statuette. From a wide circle of tin scaffolds set up in regular intervals with the flame-girt monolith as a center hung, 
head downward, the oddly marred bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared. It was inside this circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared, the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right in endless bacchanal between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire. Now tell me that's not basically a prose poem. That's, that's exactly... Exactly what I'm... Yeah. He was a poet, but he uh couldn't work in verse. It has it has a definite rhythm and a beat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh he there's a moment there, right? Because he's talking about maybe ten seconds. Yes. But, you know, if you've ever been in a car wreck, and I've been in a few because I'm terrible at driving. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, just really bad. Like, I shouldn't have a license, but I do, you know? Uh-huh. But there's this moment when something really bad is happening where time slows down. Yes. And that's what he sort of captures there. Yes. Like you're taking everything in, you're watching it, and you're shocked and horrified. Mm -hmm. So I think that but at the same time it moves. Go ahead. I said at the same time he captures. He captures that where time is moving slowly, but it's very much the feeling of an act. It's a surreal type of everything freezing. Oh, yeah. The, the surrealism is very distinct in it. Yes. Yeah. The That's surrealism it. is very distinct. And, you know, we were talking about World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we don't think about is how much nihilism that brought into the world. Oh, yeah. You think about, uh, was it Yates, right? Mm -hmm. Right after Yates. World War One, he, uh, W.B. Yates, he writes mm -hmm. the poem, The Second Coming, right? Oh, yes. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, you probably can't make it out, but I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, but he writes, things can the sinner cannot hold. Mm -hmm. And it is such an outcry for his generation. Yes. You know, things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy rules the world. Mm -hmm. This is the world that we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And in general, Pulp Fiction has been an escape, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And Lovecraft forces you to face it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because in his world, everything is evil. And there, there is a fatalism because 
you know that the person whose point of view you're getting the story from either is going to die or they're going to go insane. Absolutely. And it's already happened. There's no fixing it. No, no. You know how we talked about, you know, the first person perspective removes some of the, what would you call the suspense? Right? Yes. Right. Well, he goes entirely the opposite. There's no suspense Mm -hmm. because we know for sure he's dead. We know for sure. He's insane. It's like the walk up to the gallows there. There, you know, you know, you know where this ends and there's no way out of the walk, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I've had quite enough beers to sing you that, uh, mama, I just killed a man, but, uh, (laughs) Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, was that Sticks who had the uh, song uh, The Renegade who had a main retrieve for a bounty? That was Wings. Was it? Paul McCartney and Wings, yes. Yeah. That was a good song. We don't, good song. you know, Paul, you know, I, I, I think Paul McCartney would probably appreciate more questions about Wings. I think he would too. Yeah. Having, <laughs> Look. you know, it gets a lot of questions about the Beatles, but Wings was really a, a great group. And I I came in, I started listening to adult music about the time when Wings was right before Wings broke up. Okay. Or right yeah. after. Yeah. And so Wings was still a big deal. And it was a huge group in the 70s. I mean, it was a big there deal. And we wrote a lot of good music. I remember I was uh, the first music my dad turned told me to turn the f off was uh, Alice in Chains. So that's to let you know how <laughs> yeah, I, how old I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just turn that the f off, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> mind you, and I was nearly named after the lead singer of Jethro Tull, so. Oh, well, he's got no right to complain. (laughs) Right? At least no one played the flute in Alice in Chains. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Gotta love Jethro Tull. Ah, you really do. You know, uh, they were nominated for the first heavy metal Grammy. They were. I didn't know that. They won. They beat Metallica. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, they weren't there to accept it. Because they were like, surely we won't beat Metallica. (laughs) Yeah. So. But uh, what else do we want to say about this story? I mean, I personally, this is one of my favorites. You know, the cultural impact is. Mm -hmm. It's out there, you know. It's out there. And this impacts everything from. course there's a whole whole list of movies that fed off of uh hp lovecraft and cthulhu um i'm trying to think uh the the haunted palace with vincent price yeah um 
die monster die die monster die uh the the blanchard was it blanchardville monster no yes i'm thinking about it it is the blanchardville monster blanchardville monster uh but even even um pirates of the caribbean and davy jones I mean that is a definite Cthulhu alliteration. Oh. So, uh, yeah, I mean it. It has in. Yeah, I was thinking before we went on. Um, you take, you take this one little period in time, nineteen eighteen to uh, nineteen thirty eight. Let's say, let's say nineteen twenty to nineteen thirty eight, and you get these three guys that start writing in here. H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and uh, Token, J.R.O. Token. Mm-hmm. And they are responsible. Any type of fantasy horror book you pick up now, just about is going to be have something from Lovecraft. It's going to have, it's going to be written in the style of Token, or it's going to be written in the style of Robert E. Howard. And uh, they really formed that type of literature for uh, for a century, almost. It's and you got to think about how, oh yeah. Let's see, uh, this was published in 28, it's 2021? 20, 28, yeah, 21. Yeah, almost so, you know, yeah, you got to think about how much is really being done at this time, you know? Mm-hmm. And Cthulhu's become a pop culture icon. Right, right. You know, I, I, uh, you can go get a plush toy. Yes. Which I don't think Lovecraft would be terribly happy with. You know? No, no. <laughs> and some other time when we've got a, uh, you know, five or six hours to kill, we'll have to get into the whole mythos and really, yeah, really piece out who does what. Yes. Yes. And one of the things that that I knew uh, I knew from some of my other reading, but I, I kind of touched on it. Lovecraft actually tutored other writers. Uh, one of the names that comes up is Robert Block, oh, uh, who wrote uh, Psycho, car- right? Psycho, yes. He corresponded with uh, Robert E. Howard. And Howard borrowed elements of the Cthulhu mythos for his Conan stories. So you have a lot of back and forth here. So he kind of he kind of was um, was a mentor for a lot of writers that were coming up in the late twenties, uh, early thirties. You know, One, it becomes like this weird mimetic fake religion. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, because it's in Block, it's in uh, the Conan stories, it's in mm-hmm. uh, Derelith stories, right? It just goes everywhere. Now, Derelith uh, made it very Catholic, but yeah. you know, he put a lot of good and evil in it, which there's yeah. not a lot of good and evil in Cthulhu, there's like this horror of existentialism. Yes, the idea of there is no good or evil. Yeah, yeah. If we can't grab onto good and evil, what do we have? Well, we have something that uh, looks down at us and says, "Huh, ants." 
<laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's also that essence of good and evil. Um, it makes it when, when you're reading the story, it's hard to get your bearings and it's hard to get a purchase. And, and it's like, you know, if if you sit down and you read a, a kind of a black and white, let's say a vampire story, let's say Dracula, you got Van Helsing, he's a good guy. You got Dracula, he's a bad guy. In the story, Van Helsing stakes Dracula, everything works out. H.P. Lovecraft, you have that that mooring to moor onto. I mean, it. You're just totally. It, you're totally floating out there in um, uh, on a bad acid trip is the best way I can describe it. It's like a bad acid trip, you know, or a really good one. I don't know. Depends on how much you paid for the acid. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly not a fun one. <laughs> like you know, not a fun one. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. This is not the yellow submarine acid trip. No. That's right. There's something almost psychedelic about reading Lovecraft, and it's not psychedelic in a good way. No. And, you know, we'll touch on that probably again and again is the idea of psychedelia in horror. You know, one of mm -hmm. my favorite eras of horror is the mid to late 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got, you know, Satan's Slave being some furs. Yes, it all gets very psychedelic. It does indeed. It does indeed. Warhol's and, uh, Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that that is out real. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you well, also get, you kind of get a rethinking in the 70s. One of my favorite things that comes out of the late 70s in horror is, um, uh, Salem's Lot and mm -hmm. Salem's Lot it takes a very old uh, very old story and puts a new twist on it and modernizes it you have kind of a vampire population that's growing exponentially in a small town in America mm -hmm. which makes the which breathes new life into the it makes it takes the old scary D horror movies with Bill Lugosi that aren't really and all of a sudden, the area again, when that kid's outside floating in the air, scratching on the windowsill, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. So that, that, well, that was a really great period. Yeah, now I'm going to have nightmares. <laughs> I'm glad I could help. <laughs> yeah. As if the beers weren't helping. <laughs> but, uh, I mean... And, you know, it's interesting we mentioned Salem's Lot because Salem's Lot has that nihilism in it. It does. That it does. Lovecraft introduced to horror. You know, like I said before, what if there was a spooky skeleton? It's not nearly as scary as what if there were things beyond your control that hated you? Exactly. exactly. Or didn't pity you. Yeah. Because even Dracula pities his victims. He pities his victims. There's a sense of honor. There's a sense of romance between him, he and Mina. Yeah. Uh, between he and Lindsay, even. There's yeah. a sense uh, of love. You don't have that in Salem's Lot. In Salem's Lot, we're cattle. Oh, yeah. And, and that's no a new idea at the time. 
Yeah. 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 It's very neat. Yeah. And, you know, Stephen King has been very forthcoming about his Lovecraftian influences. You know? Yes, he has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Salem's Lot is, of course, short for Jerusalem's Lot, which he wrote a short story early on in his career called Jerusalem's Lot, which is about the Lovecraft mythos. I did not realize that. Yeah. So, there's also a short story sequel to Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. That I need. That I need. Um, It's 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 really good. Yeah, I, I didn't know about the about the original Salem plot that he wrote early in his career, but you can you, the 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 influence. I'm reading Christine right now, and it's a great story. It's, it is a great story, and it, in my opinion, it is the best Stephen King wrote. I, I love Salem's Lot too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm gonna fight you. I'm gonna say Carrie. Oh yeah, Carrie's good too. Carrie's good too. I didn't think about Carrie. Carrie's good too. But I love Christine. The idea that something so American as a hot rod and a teenager owning a hot rod and it can turn into demonic possession. I mean, it's just it's incredible. So, yeah. yeah, it's a great I'm, book. I'm really jumping. It's a great I'm, book. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, cheers, Duke. Cheers, my friend. All right. It's been fun. It's been great. We'll see you all next time on Reaper's Digest. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thank you.